Father, thank you that you have given us your son. Lord Jesus, we do want to make everything that goes to make up each of our lives something that has you in it. So just speak to us today through your word, through your spirit, and just thank you for drawing us close as um, we celebrate your presence on this first day of the week. We say this together as God's people. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Um, great to see everyone. Hope everybody's having a good summer. Uh, we're trying, but as, as I mentioned last week, we've had a couple of deaths in the family, and it's been, it's been a little challenging, so I'm grateful to be a part of a community of people that have been so supportive and so helpful and prayerful uh, as we've gone through that. And um, the one thing that I think has made all the difference is the fact that as you guys have prayed for us, um, it's just been a game changer for us to have to deal with some of the tragedy that we've had. And I think it's because we're a community of people that have a certain kind of heart that you can't find anywhere else. And it's a heart that beats to the pulse of Jesus. And when God was calling people out of Egypt and into a new relationship and into a new community, he understood really well that this group of people had to have a new way of looking at life. And not only that, a new way of living life. And the place to begin was on a mountain where he revealed himself to what would become the leader of these people, Moses. And as he did, he set apart ten words that the Hebrews would call, um, what we would call the Ten Commandments. But the Hebrews would just say those are the ten words, you know, the ten words. And as he gave each of them, there was an understanding that if you obeyed them, they would bring to bear upon your life everything that would invite goodness. And the converse side of that is, if you decided that you wouldn't take these commandments seriously, chances are your life would sooner or later come off the rails. And the thing that I know this side of all of that and this side of the Gospels and this side of everything that happened in the New Testament is that when you invite Jesus into your life, the one who embodied everything that characterized those commandments, your life begins to change. And if there's a selling point for our faith, it's when a person decides to take Jesus Christ seriously that their life truly takes on a quality of his presence with them. I can't describe with words that quality. But I can tell you the things that aren't there when he's not there. And today as we wrap up the series on the Ten Commandments, we're going to the very last one. And a lot of people sort of gloss this last one over as, yeah, and by the way, do not covet. And we may look at that and say, well, at least that's not as bad as. And just insert your sin. Uh, you know, whether it's taking other people's stuff, killing somebody, committing adultery, um, lying. Those are bad. But coveting? I don't know. And when Moses revealed this, this is how he revealed it. I'd like to show it on the screen if we can. 
uh, as we just take some time and ponder this final commandment. In Exodus 20, we read of these commandments, this last one in particular, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And that pretty much summed it up, other than some concluding remarks in Exodus. But as we're looking at that, we might be saying to ourselves, well, why is coveting even there? Why is it even a big deal? And chances are, there's a little bit of that going on in each of us. We, we live in the wake of a century of marketing that has been influenced by uh, Sigmund Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, who understood, as Freud described the person, as having churning inside of them all of these unconscious desires. And so when Edward Bernays came over here from Germany, the U.S. government said, what can you offer to help us manage the populace? That's where it started. And he said, well, I can tell you something. You can try to control people from the top down, or you can begin to manipulate their desires so that the desires that they have inside of them are the desires that you want them to have inside of them. And so in the wake of everything that he schooled Madison Avenue on was a whole way of thinking that we've inherited and bought into. That if we see something and it really appeals to us, whether it's something in and of itself or whether it is something that offers a wonderful experience, then there's something inside of us that says, I need that. You ever have that? Something inside of you saying, I just need that. I have. I, I'm going to confess my sins to you. If you saw a red motorcycle out there, that's the result of me saying to my wife on impulse, because I just happened to have 1600 bucks in my pocket at the time, that I need that. And guess how much that bike was? $1,600. It must be from God. So I bought it on the spot. And she's rolling her eyes like, you have issues. And why did she say that? Because I, I have, well, I have that bike, and I have another one. I have another one that's a mini bike that I ride around my yard. I got five more in boxes that, let me just throw Wes Anderson under the bus. He was the guy right here. He wants some of those mini bikes that I have in my garage. So if I'm going to sin, I'm going to pull other people in with me. And so he's coveting my bike collection. My wife is saying, you need, to, you need counseling, first of all. And then she said, when are you going to sell those things? I mean, she isn't with me today because she left to be with her sister. They're going through her mom's stuff and trying to sort all that stuff out. Well, every time I talk to her on the phone, she says... Are you getting stuff done? And I'm just playing dumb. And I'm like, well, I just want to inform you. We are bathing. We're eating. We're sleeping. And sometimes we're feeding the animals. And she's like, that's not what I gave you as a list of things to do. And one of the things she said was sell some motorcycles 
It must have been disappearing ink or something because I, I didn't see that. Maybe I didn't hear it. But the fact of the matter is I have a problem. And I, I go out to my garage and I see all these motorcycles and I'm like, if only I could ride them all at the same time. But I can't. There's only one of me and there's, well, too many to count at this point. And one of them sitting out there, and it's been sitting out there for, well, an hour, only to say that it had been sitting in my garage for three years. Why? Because I just like to go out and look at it. That's pretty twisted, isn't it? I decided, though, I got I to gotta step up my game and stop doing that. So I put fresh gas in it, got a new battery, went to start it up. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. And if you're mechanically inclined, there's one cure-all, and it's in a can. It's called starting fluid. So I go to pull the air cleaner out. I'm going some more with this. Trust me, it's not my ADD kicking in. And as I'm pulling it out, I'm seeing some lint inside of the air cleaner. I'm thinking, well, why is that in there? And I start pulling it, and it gets to be a big clump of stuff. And I'm like, this doesn't look good. And I start shaking it, and stuff keeps falling out. And I'm shaking it, and stuff keeps falling out. And I'm shaking it. And all of a sudden, a mouse lands in my hand. I'm like, holy cow. And it wasn't just a mouse. It was a mother mouse. And the mother mouse was nursing her two children. And this is where my sin is just getting more and more complicated. Because I'm looking at the mouse and the two children attached to the mom because they're hungry. But I'm not looking very long because in an instant, I'm just freaking out. A mouse is in my hand. And I went like that, dropped the mouse, dropped the two kids, and she scurried off to who knows where. As I'm looking at the scene unfold, I'm like, how dare you violate my motorcycle that way? And then I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to lay blame. And I began to think this through. Obviously, it's not my fault. So I'm going to start with other characters. And I told you my wife was gone. My son's not around much. So it's just me and them. That is our dog and our two, and I'm going to preface this as gently as I can, worthless cats, okay? And these cats are supposed to be responsible for the property, including motorcycles. I mean, I had a female cat. She was the little princess, and we were buddies, and she got killed last year, and I'm like to these other two. It's your job now. She was doing all the heavy lifting, and you guys were slacking. Well, obviously they don't listen to sermons any better than some of you guys. So I'm looking at them, and I'm saying, you both have been dehired. And I'm not sure where that's going, but I'm not happy. And as I'm just looking at this whole circus that is my life, I'm saying to myself, how did I get here in the first place? Right there. That's where it all started. My wife coveted three cats, and now we have this issue. <laughs> so, if any of you can influence her, I would appreciate it. 
Okay, I may have some issues myself. I mean, we'll have blind spots for sure. Maybe I need to prune down the motorcycle collection from 12 to say 6. That's reasonable, right? Well, maybe it's more chronic than that. And perhaps it's something that, as I'm telling the story, you can all relate to. Because Edward Bernays had a way of drilling into our heads, you need that. And the whole psychology of how our money is transferred out of our wallets and into the wallets of who knows who for stuff that we really don't need. But somehow he did a Jedi mind trick on us all. And he did it because he was aware of something that God has seen from the beginning. And that is, there is a, there is a, a thing that we do. And unlike any of the other nine things, you don't really do this as much as have it. I mean, trust me, anybody can make an idol, anybody can steal, you know, etc. But this one was something that God is saying, don't covet. And you're like, well, I can't really describe an action step for coveting other than I'm looking at something and I'm saying, I, I want that. I have a desire for that. And God's saying, it's okay to have desires, but it's not okay to have desires that are going off the rails in a way that it messes up your life and the lives of people around you. Being aware of that, God wanted all of his people to realize that perhaps all those other nine behaviors that you've been told not to do are behaviors that are the result of this. Wanting something that becomes a strong desire that ends up being an obsession that takes your life in a place that you scratch your head when you arrive there and you say, how in the world did I get there? And what God is saying is, you got to keep your priorities in order. The stuff that I've given you is the stuff I blessed you with. And as he played this out in the lives of the Israelites, you know what he did? He said, I'm going to feed you every day. I'm not going to give you too much, but I'm also not going to give you too little. What I do give you, I want you to be content with. I want you to be thankful for. I want you to know that it is sourced in my ongoing provision to meet your needs, every need that I've created in you, every day. But you got to trust me on this. And so God realizing that this is an area where we can get pretty tripped up described it as, if I got to break it down for you, there's a whole list of things, but I could probably expand on it if I need to, but I won't. All right, so all that to say, you may be in here today, and your struggle, you may be thinking, is with another commandment. 
But let me just uh, describe another situation that, that, that's emerging. Um, there was a professor of the Harvard Business School in the, in the Master's of, of Business uh, program who had graduated um, a, a number of students over his time. There were roughly 500. And one of his students, he, um, he said, wrote an email to him one time that described the fact that she had been given this awesome education and she had been given an incredible opportunity to do all of the things that you do with a Harvard MBA. And she was pretty thrilled about it, having an opportunity to be a VP in a Fortune 500 company until, until she read in the alumni magazine that another student had become a VP for a Fortune 100 company. And at that point, everything that she had built into her life that provided some degree of meaning and, and, and pride just crumbled. And from that point on, her obsession was to, be, was to best this other person. And when the professor read the email, he said, essentially, this is the pattern that I have, have seen out of the 500 students that I've surveyed 400 of them came back with a point of comparison between the graduate and another person. And they all named another person. And essentially, they all said the same thing. I can't believe that I am not there where they are. And it was just this incredible discontent that was generated by a sense of comparison, meaning that until you were the top dog, you didn't count for much, and you weren't worth much. And this had so invaded the psyche of the best and the brightest in our country that I can't help but think that it's not rippling down into, into the rest of, uh, uh, of, of the other classes of people that aren't them. And I wonder why we have to compare ourselves to other people to find our sense of worth, to find our sense of validation, do you know why? Because originally that sense of validation was intended to be a byproduct of a relationship with God that somehow broke down. And when it did, we had this need, a desire to find validation, and we had no other place to go except looking at the people around us and sizing them up and then finding some consolation in the fact that, well, at least I'm better than them. And God looks at all this stuff and he says, man, that's not how community is supposed to work. And he's aware that this is a, this is a, a, a time bomb getting ready to go off. And if people would discover the contentment that they needed to have in him, true community could work. But how many of us have been caught up in that, where every day we're plagued by some kind of train of thought that says, man, they, they, they've got a better job, they got a better income, they have a better house, they have a better, and, and this wouldn't be my problem, but um, a better nanny, uh, you know, all, just take your category and then compare it and come up short. And all of a sudden, you find that inner turmoil, don't you? That sense of, yeah, this haunts me. And God says, 
I may have saved some people out of Egypt. That was just a start. What I want to also do is save them from inner turmoil that is unnecessary, that can be satisfied if they would only understand the secret. And I'm not going to tell you what the secret is just yet. But at the end of the sermon, I will. And there's another character in this mix that I think we need to take a careful look at. He's kind of my theological hero. Uh, Being a nerd, I really geek out on this guy. And that's the Apostle Paul. I love the Apostle Paul. I've read everything I can find on the Apostle Paul. Um, You know, he's my go-to guy. And what I find interesting about him is, even though he's kind of got heroic status in my mind, when I read through his stuff, I'm finding stuff out about him that I thought, wow, he's got feet of clay like the rest of us. You know how it is. You see somebody and you, you really like what they're doing. They seem to have their act all together and then... A little, cheek, a little little crack in the armor starts to appear. And you're like, oh, well maybe, maybe they're not so special after all. And I think Paul wanted to tell us, I'm not. I've got, I've got game because I've got responsibility, but I'm not. Matter of fact, Paul said, when I look at the law that we're talking about, and I carefully evaluate what it, what it means for my life, because what the law does essentially is it takes a spotlight And it puts it on your heart and it says, this is what's going on. And there are some people who read the word and they're like, man, this is very convicting. (laughs) Keep me away from that book. Or there are some people who get close to Jesus and they find, yeah, he's starting to bring stuff to the surface in my life that's making me uncomfortable. And I would say that if there is any reason why churches should offend people, there's actually one. And that is the offense of the cross. Jesus should be offensive because he should make us uncomfortable. He should make us aware that we need help. We need change. We need transformed. And he's not doing that to be harsh. But rather he's doing that to highlight what is there that is keeping you from living the best life that you're called to live. And of course there's other ways that we can offend people. It might be, oh by the way. You're a guest here. You're sitting in my pew. That's my pew. And that could lead to offense. But other than, that, other than those two, um, the only reason why we should offend anybody in the church is because we have a message that cuts to the heart. And here's what Paul said. He said in Romans chapter 7, he's describing the law and then he personalizes what it means for him as he's trying to you know, teach us some bright things that I don't fully understand. But we'll give it a shot. This part I do know. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin... Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting for apart from the law, sin was dead. You know what Paul recognized? Is that he had a perpetual need for more. There's never enough. How do I know that? Because on a couple of occasions he described how he had it all. In one situation, he said, let me tell you something about where I came from. I was 
I was um, uh, circumcised on the eighth day. I was raised in a Hebrew family in the right location, in the right neighborhood. I was from the tribe of Benjamin. And as I go through this, this may not have any value for you, but what I want you to understand is, in the minds of the people that heard it in that time, they would say, wow. And as he's describing all of these things, and and I'm going to elaborate a little bit, he said, when I was five, my parents sent me off to religious training. At the age of 10, they said, you are so good and so precocious, we're going to put you at the feet of the best mentor that we have, Gamaliel. And as you study under his feet, we know that good things are going to come out of that. And they began to emerge. And three years later, he was in Pharisee school. Now, I know you hear the word Pharisee and you're thinking, yeah, we've, they're, they're just bad people. But the reality is, that's, just, that, that's one, one side of, of, of a very complex picture. If you're a religious person in Paul's day and you were a Pharisee, that was like being a cardinal or a pope for a, a Catholic in, in the sense that it's all good. And in their mind, if you had achieved that status, you were in the most respectable position you could be in. And, and in their culture, uh, business and religion and all of that were bundled up into one. So you were, you were that guy. You were the guy that stood out. You were a powerful, powerful person. And Paul had gone through essentially everything that would produce a Harvard MBA to become that guy. And everybody knew he was that guy. Matter of fact, it said in other writings about Gamaliel describing his students, he said, oh, but there was one, and he stood out, head and shoulders above all the rest. And scholars say, given all the information that we have, that was Paul. So here Paul is, he's got game. He's got respectability. He's better than everybody else. But he's not interested in accumulating a lot of things. However, he is interested in his cause and making a name for himself. So much so that at the time of his conversion, he was exercising all the energy that he had to kill Christians. And he was on a rampage. And it was sort of like, well, so-and-so has arrested and perhaps led to the, led to the execution of this number of Christians. I'm going to double it. And it was obvious from the standpoint of the people of his day. He was very ambitious. But do you know what the reality was? Paul, before he was Paul, was Saul. You know, after King Saul, you know, that's they named him after a king. So you imagine giving your kid a king's name, and they're growing up thinking, I'm the king. And he had that sort of an attitude. And reading between the lines, you see the sense of obligation, of almost entitlement. Of a sense that I'm a a pretty special breed. I'm doing the best thing for the best cause in the world. But what happened on the road to Damascus was a revelation for him. Because it, it underscored the fact that even though he was doing all the religious things, making all the right religious impressions... His heart was filled with covetousness. He was not really that interested in God personally. He was not that interested even in his own sins because he had a blind spot to this sin of his own ambition, of his own development, of of the persona that he was projecting to everyone else. But on the road to Damascus, 
the most painful thing that could happen to a human being from the standpoint of their soul happened. And Jesus just appeared full of truth and grace. And how that played out in this encounter was simply this. The bright light appeared. Everything that was jacked up in Paul's life came front and center. And he was broken to his knees. And as he's looking at him, he's saying, Lord. Because in that moment, he discovers that the very people that he had spent all of that wonderful personal capital and pedigree and ambition to kill were the people that were following him. And in that face-to-face encounter, he saw his life for what it was. The things that were not right in his life become very apparent. And it just broke him. Broke him so much that his eyes were, were obscured for three days. And just in that dark, dark place, God said, I want you to get the point. This is a severe mercy. This is a severe grace. You need to know that what you've been doing, where you've been going with your life, even though in the eyes of everyone else it seems like it's been the right thing, has been the wrong thing. And so Paul writes about it. And he said in the book of Philippians, I give you all of that pedigree that I spent my whole life building up to underscore a point. And that is, I consider all of it crap. Now you're like, he just said crap in church. No, I actually translated the word scubalon in Greek. So there's my out. So you can look it up if you want. And if you do, you'll see the word crap. Paul used the word crap. I just use it, but not in disrespect. Only because Paul was saying all that crap that I've built up in my life, that I've created as a foundation for my whole identity and my whole sense of worth and even my security, all that crap is nothing except the one thing that matters in my life right now is Jesus Christ. And that's where he goes from it. He says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this Through him who gives me strength. What is the secret? Jesus Christ. There is no other destination that our lives should arrive at than that. I I have I have two kids that are leaving the nest, another one. Um, it's not that they want to leave. One of them wanted to come back. But we, you know, like birds, threw her out of the nest. But the price that you pay is loneliness. You don't realize when your kids are gone how lonely you feel. I even called my mom up the other day and I said, I just want to tell you something. 
or I want to ask you something. When, when we left the nest, how did you feel? Lonely? I'm like, okay, that's why I feel that way. I'm missing my people. And my people have left. My wife's gone. Son's working a subway. The other's, who knows? And as I'm sitting there by myself and feeling sorry for myself for not having any people, the other night I put a movie in. It was John Wick. And I thought, I'm just going to console my loneliness by watching an action movie. Well, right out of the gate, the wife gets killed, and then the dog gets killed. And I'm like, oh, man, I've got a hole here, and this isn't helping. And I went to bed that night, and usually Nigel, I put him at the foot of the bed, and I say, just stay down there because I don't want to smell your breath in the morning. And he does. I mean, I have one law with him, and that's it. But I'm laying down. I'm like, man, I, I just feel alone. So I said, Nigel, come on up here and lay down. He's like, mm-mm, no way, it's a trick. I said, no, it's all right, it's all right, come on down. I don't think so, that's not the rule. So finally, after five minutes of persuading him, he came up about halfway. And I'm like, hmm, yeah, there's a void here. And I think it's a void that we all feel when he's not in it. And I, I really believe there are only three options when it comes to God. And I've seen my two older kids go through this, and I've been processing them with, with them. And one of them is, you can be an atheist. You can choose to not believe. That's my whole way of looking at life. Well, I'll tell you what, here's my belief. I don't believe. That's how I choose to position my life. I'm, I'm, I'm a non-believer. But that doesn't sound very constructive. And you could look at an Eastern religion, and you could say it's all just God. You know, it's, everything is God. You just got to kind of tune into it. All this wonderful power and force that is at work in the world is God and it's in you. And there is a sense where God says Christ is in all and through all. And you think, what's the connection here? Here's the difference. To reduce God down to just a power that has no personality is incredibly lonely. Because there's no person there. It's just an intangible undescribable force. But God said, I know your deepest need and it isn't to obey rules. It's actually to begin to have your heart change through a relationship. And our mission for being here is to help each of you to grow in your relationship with him. And it starts with just perhaps inviting him in. Maybe you felt that loneliness. Maybe you felt that weight, that anxiety, that sense of things are not right and everything that I try does not put it right. Let me assure you from personal experience that when you invite him in and you tend to that relationship, you don't really feel that because he's always there. And he's faithful. And he helps us with everything. And I can't use words to describe what that means. All I know is when I invite him close, my being says, the Lord's there. And when I push away, my being says, I'm afraid. I'm insecure. I'm not looking upwards. I'm looking around. And I need to try to satisfy that through what my eyes are telling me that I need. 
You don't have to play that game anymore because the answer is right in front of you, and it's him. We have our Next Step Studios right outside this door, off to the left, and then in the double doors. And it is our way of saying, if Jesus is working in your heart here, when you leave here, someone's going to try to steal everything that you've heard in this room. And we want to help you to act on it in this moment, what Jesus is doing in your life. So you can begin this journey that many of us are experiencing with him. And we want to come alongside you however we can. Because that is our whole reason for being. And with that said, I want you to know that the secret to your need for contentment in a culture that tries to generate discontentment at every turn so that you'll buy their product is Jesus Christ. And maybe it's time to start downsizing and just making him the one thing that matters. Father, I just pray that as these words are spoken, they have honored you. I pray for everyone in this room that you desire to know in a deeper and a more intimate way that through what they've experienced today through your spirit, that that relationship could become what it needs to be. And where we're at right now with our, in our walk with you, Lord, may it just be stronger. Because you, Lord, are the secret. And we surrender our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.